0: The foundation is built on solid rock. Yeshua, Yeshua. the rock of our salvation on Solace Radio. Before Before we begin our Torah study, let's pray together. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. I hadn't planned on starting with this, but I want to give a special welcome to the podcast listeners who will be hearing this message, and uh, especially to those in New Zealand and Namibia, who we've heard from recently. So greetings to Namibia, greetings to New Zealand. It's great to hear from people all over the world started hearing from some people in Egypt in Iraq Iran and some other places as well it it turns out that God can reach people all over the world through this congregation and through the ministry that we're doing together and uh Can rejoice with us together as we're reaching out to so many people. We want to give a special welcome to those who are listening. They have no idea we're going to say this, they'll be surprised. I hope you all are smiling in Namibia today, and in Egypt, and in New Zealand, and every other place where uh, we're scattered to the four corners of the world. I want to talk to you today about being fruitful. And specifically, what do we need in order to thrive so that we can be fruitful? And I I want to connect this to the Torah portion, but before we turn there, I I want to give you some, some basic ideas. And in order to be fruitful, we really need to have a relationship with God. You can't bear good spiritual fruit without life in God. And so we, we need life that's centered in the God of Israel, in faith in the Messiah, Yeshua. And as well, we need fullness that comes from being immersed in the Holy Spirit. To receive the gift of the Holy Spirit himself and his gifts, these are very important so that we can bear fruit. Now, there is a difference Worth noting between the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit are given in a way instantly when you receive them and without regard sometimes to your character. The fruit of the Spirit develops over time and is always connected to character. And sometimes people will be. Uh, moving strongly in gifts of the Spirit and have bad character. And I don't want you to be alarmed about that. The gifts of the Spirit are not proof of character. I want you to understand that. And they are given to new believers and to every other kind of believer without regard to that, because God has promised that he will pour out his Holy Spirit on all flesh and blood. The work of the Holy Spirit is to help bring us into godliness so that we can bear the fruit of the Spirit. So it's not an either or, it's a both and, but never be more impressed by the gifts of the Spirit than the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is uh, the sine qua non, the, that which out, without which you really have almost nothing. So it, I, let me make it real Clear, how many have ever prayed for the gift of patience? (laughs) When you've been waiting so long, it's like, God, give me patience now. Patience is not a spiritual gift, that's the problem. It's fruit. How does patience develop? (laughs) That's the problem, (laughs) right? (laughs) And so, you know, everybody in the midst of difficulty is saying, oh, God, give me patience. And he says, okay. So first of all, we need a relationship with God, a strong relationship with God, life in God, faith in Messiah, fullness of the Holy Spirit. And then we have to walk in faith and faithfulness, not just in our desires and our imaginations, but with obedience and with gratitude and a life of humility and submission to the Lord. So that's one part. And if you leave that part out, nothing else that I'm going to say will apply to you. It's the starting point, and it is a continuing point. Life with God will always be important. You can never be religious enough that you can do without God. Now, having said that, there's something else that we need to thrive. We need to know what we're really like. And I I want to to tell you something that we're going to explore in our study, and that is we are like grapevines and olive trees. And in order to understand our life and what it takes for us to be fruitful, it's useful for us to understand how uh, grapevines thrive and how olive trees thrive. Where do they grow? And where do they prosper? Where do they thrive? What kind of earth, what kind of environment is good for them? Because when you understand you are like a grapevine, you are like an olive tree, it's not just because of the taste of the fruit. In fact, it has nothing to do with the taste. It has to do with the nature. And, you know, there are some beautiful tender plants. How many people like tomato plants? You need good soil for tomato plants, right? You have to take care of them. Um, grapevines and olive trees love craggy soil, rocky soil, hard, hard, rocky, steep environments. They love places where other kinds of uh, plants may not do well, but they do well. Now, sometimes if we don't recognize that we're grapevines or we're olive trees, we'll be confused and think, oh, you know what, I'm a a tender blossom. And what I need is like beautiful topsoil. The alluvial riverbed is where I wanna be. And I need protection, you know, maybe a greenhouse would be good too, to shield me. And there's a problem for grapevines and for olive trees, if they stay in that kind of environment, they won't grow up. That's okay to nurture the shoot and to let them begin, but they either have to be planted in that craggy place or they have to be grafted onto an existing plant that is there in order to thrive. If they stay in the protected environment of a greenhouse, or they just stay in, the, in, in beautiful Iowa topsoil, you know what, they're not gonna thrive, they're not gonna prosper. Grapevines are growing in hard places that other things don't grow. And I'm talking about good grapevines. I'm not just talking about wild grapes, you know, that, you know, that are like kudzu. But the best, the best wine grapes grow in really difficult places. Now, you might say, well, Rabbi, what's 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 wine got to do with us? And I want to answer that question. I'm prepared for that question. The first public miracle that Yeshua performed was at a wedding where the wine ran out. And he made wine for the celebration. Now that's not so remarkable, though interesting. What was remarkable, what above and beyond that was when that wine was served, what did people say? (laughs) This is really good, it's the best wine. So that tells you something. Yeshua knows the difference between Mug David wine. Bad Dog 2020. Reuniti and the wine he made. He made the best wine. He knows the difference. Now this is in the Bible. I didn't put it in the Bible. Do you agree? I did not put it in your Bible. It's in your Bible that he made great wine which means he understands greatness in that matter, Which gives us some appreciation about his view of the, the development of fruit. He wants really good fruit. Do you get that? How many of you remember that Seinfeld episode about uh, Peaches and uh, Kramer? You know, he, he, okay, there's one of us. Yeah, way to go. I knew I could count on you. (laughs) When you buy fruit, there's only one reason to buy it, because you want it to be good, right? And when it's not good, it's disappointing. Yeshua wants good fruit. And he knows what's good. This is what I'm trying to say to you. I'm trying to make this point. Yeshua knows the difference between good fruit and not good fruit. Between a lot of good fruit and not much good fruit. Between fruit that starts out like it has a lot of promise but doesn't fulfill the promise. And the fruit that grows all the way to ripeness in abundance and greatness. He didn't make one bottle of good wine. He made a lot, and he made outstanding wine that caused everyone to say, whoa, no one serves the best wine at the end of the party. You know why? They can't tell the difference <laughs> so well at the end of the party. But this was so good that they could tell the difference. And I'm not a wine connoisseur, so I can't really speak about what it what its qualities were, but I can tell you this, the Bible is absolutely clear that this was so good that even the people towards the end of the party could tell, this is the best wine. So we need to know what, what is the environment for grapes, grapevines, and what is the environment for olive trees? Because that will help us understand. Now, I, if there's someone sitting near you who you like, just look them over and see: do they look more like an olive tree or a grapevine? It's probably not the look. I, I can tell you this. My wife has collected uh, grapey things, grape clusters, uh, over the years, we got a lot of things with little grapes on them. No, there's a lion. I was looking to so see, I couldn't remember if I was wearing grapes. The, it's not the visible, it's, it's, it's not that you mimic a grapevine or you mimic a, an olive tree. It's that you're called to be fruitful like them. And that requires that you thrive in the way that they thrive. And unless you understand what contributes to them thriving, you may never understand your own life and the the reasons why you're not in a greenhouse-protected environment. Have, Have you ever had those kinds of prayers where you're really asking, Lord, just protect me from all this harsh you know, the storms of life. Who's, who's ever prayed, God, get me out of this storm? Yeshua's disciples were so disturbed when he was in the boat with them and the storm kicked up on the and and he was sleeping. How dare he sleep through the storm? And what did Yeshua end up doing when he woke up? It's like... <laughs> Okay, stop the storm, you know, if that's what it takes. But he has promised us something. Storms will come in this life to every kind of person. And you will endure and succeed if you hear his instruction and put it into practice. This is his teaching to us. So you and I need to understand, we can't just always pray that the storms will be quieted but that we will get through the storms and that we'll sometimes navigate around the storms when we need to, because this life has storms in it. Now, there's one other aspect about what we need in order to thrive and to be fruitful, and that is we need ministry assignments and we need responsibilities. And the Torah portion, which we're looking at, speaks to this, Uh, ministry in the congregation, to be a doorkeeper in the house of God is a great thing. To serve the Lord, doing practical things, both the visible and the invisible, the things that people notice and the things that people don't notice, these are important. To have specific responsibilities with schedules and duties and to be faithful to our assignments, these are everlasting keys to thriving and to be fruitful. With that in mind, let's turn to the Torah portion. Numbers chapter 4. We'll look at one verse in this chapter. Here's the instruction, verse 32. You are to assign particular loaves to specific persons by name. The Levites need to carry stuff. This is important to understand. I'm from the Levites, the Leviim, And some people say, oh, I want to be a Levite, meaning I want to be on the worship team. You don't want me on the worship team, I can tell you that. I can carry a heavier load uh, than some, but being on the worship team is not good. Some of the Levites had jobs where they just needed to carry stuff and set things up. And according to God, it was not only work, it was ministry. And it was not only ministry, it was worship to the Lord to do this. And here's the instruction, assign particular loads to specific persons by name. You see, each of us is created with unique qualities, and our ministry assignments, in God's eyes, are connected to those qualities. And we need to receive our responsibilities, and to be very specific and and to receive them as from the Lord. And as we move into Numbers chapter 7, you'll see why it's so important to receive it from the Lord. The assignments, say this word, assignment. Moses was told, assign everyone. That's really different than saying, okay, who wants to carry the heavy stuff on Shabbat? Who wants to come in early and set things up? Who wants to be here to turn on the lights? You know, not many people will volunteer for that. And you can look around and see if you even know who does that kind of work here. And you can ask this question. You can ask this question. Have I myself ever volunteered to do that? Can I even be assigned to do that? It's just a question. Let me say, I don't have an ulterior motive here. I'm going through the scripture, but I'm trying to unpack it so that you can see what it's saying and make it personal. Let's go to number seven. I'm saying ulterior motive, meaning there's not going to be a moment at the end of the service or in the middle of this message where I'm going to say, okay, now everyone who wants to open up the building, come forward, we're going to pray for you. No, this is talking about being assigned, not volunteering. Volunteering is separate and important. It's not the same thing as receiving an assignment. Numbers chapter 7, let's go to that. Verses 4 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, receive these offerings from them. They're to be used for the service in the tent of meeting. Give them to the Levites, to each as needed for his duties. And so Moses took the wagons and the oxen and gave them to the Levites. The wagons and the oxen. Oh God, we want gifts. Okay? Here's what you need for your ministry. Wagon, oxen. Verse 7, he gave two wagons and four oxen to the descendants of Gershon in keeping with the needs of their duties. So Gershon, the guys from Gershon were given assignments that required that they move heavy stuff. And that required that they have how many wagons? Two wagons and how many oxen? Four oxen, right. So they had that much heavy stuff to move around. They needed two oxen for each wagon. Can you do the math? You see, it's not hard, is it? Okay, verse 8. Four wagons and eight oxen he gave to the descendants of Marari in keeping with the needs of their duties directed by Itamar the son of Aaron the high priest. Now this is interesting. They get more stuff. So if you've got oxen envy and you're from Gershon, this could stir up a problem for you. Not many people do have oxen envy. I have not yet met someone who said, you know, what I've always wanted was a couple of oxen. In fact, last night I tested the congregation to see if anybody could even name a famous ox. And some of us could. Let's hear it out loud. Babe. Babe the blue Blue ox. And who did Babe go along with? Paul Paul Bunyan. If you don't know who Babe is and you don't know who Paul Bunyan is, ask someone. If you once knew, then this will be good. This is like one of those uh, free build your memory capability programs. Normally you have to pay something extra, but uh, it's free today. Babe the Blue Ox. I can't think of one more famous ox. They're not all that popular. So we can't say that a lot of people have ox envy. But you know, sometimes... When we see that somebody else gets more than us, we don't realize that they may have more responsibility or that it's exactly right for the duties or the challenges that they're responsible for. So the reason the descendants of Marari got four wagons and eight oxen is really clear. What's the reason? They had more to carry. They had more to transport, right? They had more work to do. So it could be that if they were lazy, they'd say, well, I only want to carry what Gershonites have to carry. Why should we need to do all this work? But if they had a good attitude, they'd say, thank you Lord for the work you've assigned to us. I am pretty sure that there was not a large group of Levites who were volunteering and saying, you know, I've been praying, my heart's desire is to uh, lead an ox." couple of ox, even in a wagon, and to move heavy stuff that 's what would really make me like feel fulfilled, <laughs> having said that, the history is that some of the people who received this assignment, this kind of assignment, took it to heart, and they started saying, Lord, this is from you. I want to be the best at moving heavy loads. I want to be the best." oxen master, the best wagon master, I want to be the best mover of heavy things. And they committed themselves to doing the very best work that they could. Verse 9, to the descendants of Kahat he gave none, meaning no oxen, no wagon. Why? Why don't we get these? But there's an explanation. Their duties involved the holy articles which they carried where? on their shoulders. Isn't that interesting? These Levites were the beasts of burden, not the oxen, not the oxen with wagons. Their responsibility was to carefully carry holy objects on their shoulders. What was important is specific people got specific responsibilities, different responsibilities and duties required different resources, but all of it was important to the Lord, that's why it's all named here. So that each one of us would say, looking back, "Oh, these people did something important. And you know what? I can serve with the same attitude that they had. Now, Paul understood this, and he tried to communicate this kind of attitude to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. Incidentally, you can find all these scriptures on Facebook uh, on the Beth Israel Messianic Synagogue Facebook page. They're up there now. You can find them on our Messianic Jewish uh, teachings, the podcast Facebook page. You can find them on my personal Facebook page, uh, David Levine. We post them there. Uh, We try to do that before services so that you can have access to them and can refer to them later as well. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul writes this, we are his workmanship. We are his workmanship. We are the things that God has crafted and made. Created in Messiah Yeshua for, for, and what's next is really important. For what? Good works. Good works. We have been created in Messiah Yeshua in order to do good things, in order to serve him, in order to fulfill the responsibilities, the assignments he gives us, in order to be fruitful in him. We are created in Messiah Yeshua so that we can have all the money we want, so that we can have leisure time. I mean, money and leisure are good. They're not evil. But that's not why we were created Messiah Yeshua. We were created Messiah Yeshua so that we can carry out the very things that he wants to accomplish on this earth that require humans to do it. Created Messiah Yeshua for good works which God prepared beforehand <clears throat> so that we would walk in them. So God has a plan that includes you. He has ideas about what he wants to accomplish that include you. And he will give you assignments if you fit into the local congregation, if you have the right attitude and you serve faithfully. He'll give you assignments that are just right for you. We're his workmanship created for good works, which God has prepared beforehand. Not only did he knit you together in your mother's womb But he was organizing ideas and plans for you. He has plans that include your service. And he doesn't want you to only know about those plans. It says, so that we would walk in them. You know what that means? So that we would do them. We would actually fulfill them. Sometimes we're so thrilled when we know something. So thrilled. And then when we have to carry it out... Maybe we lose some of the motivation. People get a new job that they prayed for, and then it turns out the hours are longer, or the work is more difficult, or uh, everything is more demanding. And they're going to God, Lord, why'd you give me this job? (laughs) Well, because I prepared it beforehand for you. It's good for you. It's the right thing for you. Why do I have this ministry? so that I can fulfill what God has prepared beforehand. So we are his workmanship, and we're created for good works. This is connected to our very nature. Now, flowers are great. I love flowers. I love Dutch flowers. We used to uh, import flowers from Holland, from the Holland flower auction with a broker. They'd, uh, they'd fly them to us. We'd sell them uh, in Virginia, and they'd be as fresh as they could be, and beautiful. I love all kinds of flowers. I love to go to gardens with beautiful plantings and beautiful flowers, Kuchenhof in in Holland, one of the great gardens we've been to. And uh, before we moved to Jacksonville, Sandy and I stopped in Holland, coming from Ukraine, and spent uh, a weekend with friends, In Holland, and we went to Kuchenhof, and we had a day in that garden that was one of the best days of our lives. Isn't that true? And we've taken friends and travels there. I love flowers and gardens, but you know what? God doesn't call us to be just flowers and beautiful, He calls us to be fruitful. And sometimes, the secrets of fruit are different than the secrets of flowers. We were in the garden center business, the landscaping interior and outdoor landscaping business, and we used to sell very good fruit trees, Stark Brother fruit trees. And when we would sell them to people, you know, they they really loved the kind of fruit tree they were getting that would produce exceptional fruit. Not normal fruit, but the best fruit. But the before they took it, after they paid for it... They always picked one that looked perfect. Right, they would always pick the tree that was like the biggest on the top and looked perfect. And after, after they bought it, we, we said, okay, now we have to ask you a question. Do you want the most fruit you can get from this tree? And all of them said, yeah, that's why I'm buying it. And we said, okay, we need to prune it before it goes. Yeah, we had pruning shears that we all wore on our hips and so we pulled out the pruning shears and we started cutting off the, uh, the branches that needed to be cut off so that the remaining structure would be perfect for the future and that there wouldn't be too many branches that would then compete with each other and be weak. You can't imagine how grown men would not only wince, but they'd make noises out loud of agony, like, oh! You know, like we were cutting them. (laughs) The protest, I mean, sometimes people would grab our hand, you know, like, no, stop! And some people would say, I just paid for that, and now you're cutting it off. And we said, I thought you wanted more fruit. And we had to learn how do you prune for fruitfulness, which is really important, really important. And so when when you understand fruitfulness is important, it's even more important than being, you know, a beautiful flower. It gives you a different attitude about your own life. You say, you know what, I want to produce fruit. I want to produce a lot of fruit, a lot of good fruit. That's what I want in my life. That gives permission, if you will, to the work of God for his pruning. Now, no one minds having the dead wood cut off of their lives. But everyone minds being pruned back when it's fruitful parts of our lives. And we just have to learn to endure it because it's good for us unless the grapevine is pruned back to the right number of uh, leads and the right length, it will not prosper and grow the best grapes at that time. It's necessary to endure pruning. And so when you understand, oh, I'm a grapevine, I am an olive tree, and this is my life, then you can accept it. And you can endure it, and it's not agony, it's not an existential crisis to go through these things. This is life, and it produces fruit. Now Yeshua tried to communicate some of this to his disciples, and we read about it in John chapter 15. And this is a passage, you can turn there right now, John chapter 15. This is a passage that we looked at last week and Yeshua says this I have to look at exactly where I want to be we'll start in verse 14 you are my friends if you do whatever I command you (laughs) I thought we were just going to hang out no 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 longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends, because all the things that I've heard from my Father I've made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you so that you should go and, what does your Bible say? Say that louder? Bear Bear fruit. That's why I chose you, to bear fruit. Now, In order to really grasp this, go back to verse 4, where Yeshua says, Abide in me. Oh, no, let's go back to the, let's go back to verse 1. I'm the true vine, Yeshua says. My Father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he takes. Let's get rid of that in the Bible. (laughs) Because we don't like that part. Let me give a different translation. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he cuts off. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes carefully so that it may bear more fruit. He prunes it differently. You are already clean. Meaning you're already being... Prune because of the word which I've spoken to you. And then he gives these words, which I want to focus on. Abide in me and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Okay, so now look at the, someone around here look at someone sitting next to you and, and take notice of them. They're a, they're a branch, They don't have life in themselves. They're like a grapevine that is a branch. And if it's separated from the vine itself, it's just going to wither and die. They're like an, an olive branch. If it's separated from the rest of the tree and the trunk and the roots, what will happen to it? It will die. It will never be fruitful. The only way, Yeshua says, to his disciples that we can be fruitful as if we stay in him. And understand, we're not branches to ourselves. We are branches in him. And we have real life when we are connected to him. Life in him. Say that with me. Life in him. And you can say it like this. I'm nothing more than a branch. I cannot be fruitful all by myself. I can't grow, I can't thrive, I cannot even survive on my own. Do you get that? That's what Yeshua is saying to his disciples. He's saying, this is your nature. And anybody who wants to live without God, who would hear these words, would leave, and they wouldn't be fruitful. Same for us today. I'm the vine, you're the branches. <laughs> I'm the vine, you're the branch. Okay, now if you like the person sitting near you, you can say, hey, branch. Branch. Hey, branch. I like branches. <laughs> branches are good. Branches are what we are. Now, back to what Yeshua said you didn't choose me, I chose you. Who's got higher rights in this case? He does. That's right. He has the right to assign. He has the right to define. I appointed you to go and be beautiful flowers. (laughs) I love flowers, but that's not what he said. I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will remain. Now, it's important to understand what this means. How many people have ever gardened? Can I see hands? How many people have eaten food, but you have never... I mean, you think food comes from Publix? <laughs> <laughs> Publix sells food, but it doesn't really come from them. I point to you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will remain. It's important to understand what this is talking about. Have you have you ever grown tomatoes? Those of you who have gardened and and you saw the tomatoes set, and it looked very promising. And then they were cast off and they never really developed. Who's had that kind of experience? Brenda Miller, you're a master gardener. I know you've had people come to you who are saying, what's going wrong with my plants? And you have to advise them, do this and do that. If if you want fruit, you want fruit that remains, right? Not just fruit that has promise, but fruit that really remains. If, If you are the owner of an apple orchard, what do you want? Apples, that's right. Good apples, tasty apples, not mealy apples, right? Tasty. Good quality, good quantity. If, if you are the master of a vineyard, what do you want? Good grapes. Right. When Yeshua says fruit that will remain, what he means is this. It's not enough to have promise. It's not enough to set the fruit and then for it never to develop and ripen and never be useful. What's necessary and what he's looking for is fruit that remains fruit that sets, fruit that develops, fruit that ripens, fruit that can be harvested, and fruit that can be enjoyed by the owner of, the master of the vineyard and the olive tree. And who is that? It's the Lord. Yeshua says of himself, I'm the vine. And he said, my father is the vine dresser, right? Between us, a lot is going to happen. So we're called to be fruitful. That's our nature. We're called to be fruitful. Now, that person you smiled at, look at them and just tell them, you will be fruitful because it's your nature. You will be fruitful because it's your nature, And then Yeshua says, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Whatever you ask the Father in my name. This is really important. Not whatever you ask the Father in your name, ending your prayer with in the name of Yeshua or in the name of Jesus. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about a formula for prayer. He's saying the things that belong to me, you can ask for. In other words, if you've been assigned something and God wants you to fulfill everything connected to it, you can ask all you want about that, and he'll answer you. Because he wants you to do what you've been assigned by God to do. He'll give you gifts, he'll give you relationships, he'll give you opportunities, he'll give you people around you, he'll he'll give you everything that's necessary so that you can be fruitful but you do have to remain faithful and fruitful. You have to have that good attitude, that, that joy. You know, the Levites who were assigned to, to, uh, to prepare the incense for the temple, they took it so seriously that they learned how to make incense that could go straight up in a column without veering at all, without dissipating. It went almost like a shaft up. And they perfected it. Why did they do that? Because when they were little baby boys, their daddy said, one day son, you're going to be an incense maker. No, because the Lord said to them, I've called you to serve me this way. And everyone who embraced it, embraced it with real seriousness. And they were so serious that they understood what they were learning and what they were doing was from the Lord. It wasn't for themselves. And so they agreed they would never use that same skill or that same incense for other purposes. It was just for the house of the Lord. You will be fruitful and bear fruit if you do it the way that the Lord has assigned you to do it. Now I want to close with this idea that Yeshua gives us this Instruction to be fruitful. He gives us the secret that we got to remain in Him and we, we need to accept this life so that we can thrive in Him. But it's not coming from principles that He learned about, it comes from His very nature in His life. And this is why He said, I am the vine. Now we'll close with Isaiah 11, verse 1. And we could put it this way. A little shoot is going to come up from the rootstock of Jesse. And from his roots, a branch will develop and will bear fruit. Now, it's understood in in the Jewish world that this is a prophecy about Messiah. Messiah will come from the family of Jesse through David. And Yeshua, who is from the house of David, is this Messiah. Messiah. And so Yeshua is saying, I am this vine, I'm this vine, and I will bear fruit, and you are my branches, you will bear fruit, remain in me. Now, the joy of life is so much stronger when you know who you are and what you are. You may have come here thinking, you know, I am a begonia. I want to tell you, you're an olive tree. You're a a grapevine. You might say, I don't like olives. So what? (laughs) Olive trees don't eat olives. They make olives. Grapevines don't eat grapes. They make grapes. It's not about your preference. It's about your nature. And once you get your nature more clear, then you're... Environment makes more sense. <laughs> I'm a grapevine. Now I understand why life is rocky. Now I understand why there's some adversity. Because grapevines and olive trees thrive in rocky soil in adversity. Did I say something? Okay. Come right up, Sandy. Okay.
1: We had to take care of every single thing every day. They didn't take care of themselves. When we had a flower market probably as big as this room, every couple of days we got in boxes of flowers that had to be taken care of from the moment they got there until they're sent out with the customer, and still then the customers want help. And when, uh, when we had greenhouses, we lived in um, Virginia Roanoke, Virginia. Well, it's very cold in Roanoke, Virginia, about half the year. And I remember nights when it'd be a, you know, we'd be like panicking. It's going to be a certain degree. You know, do we have enough oil to heat the greenhouses? What about the little plants in the greenhouses? And I'm really struck today by the difference in that part of our life and that kind of caretaking versus a congregation where people are growing to maturity. And when we had greenhouse plants, uh, we were tied to those greenhouses. We were tied to those plants. Our son is still in the micro-plant business so his plants only get about this big. He grows microgreens. And every few weeks, he's got another crop of babies. And he can hardly go anywhere, you know. He's got to water several times a day. And we, had, we lived that life, too. You know, it'd be a hot day, you had to go water more. It'd be a cold day, and you had to go hover, you know, and make sure nothing was freezing. And I'm just rejoicing today in the difference in those environments. And I'm really grateful that, um, you know, we don't have a hothouse congregation. <laughs> <laughs> I actually didn't mean that to be funny. It is <laughs>
0: funny though, but it is <laughs> insightful, but funny.
1: But, I, you know, it, I just sat there realizing that this is such a different time in ministry, you know. And even during that time, we had baby believers. And we had a lot of young single women, you know, who would like, oh, find my husband. Or, you know, just a lot of uh, different issues than, you know, a mature congregation has. And I don't know, I just sort of want to, to thank the lord and to congratulate you you know <laughs> so that's
0: beautiful and and that ties into that great experience we had at chapel on sunday
1: yes
0: because we saw young people filled with the holy spirit but then we saw them praying for others and what i didn't tell you is we had a, we had an older person gray hair man who who came and he really wanted to be immersed in the Holy Spirit and receive the gift of tongues. He was so frustrated because he didn't feel like he was getting anywhere. And so I asked the three boys who had gotten filled with the Spirit to pray for him. And they prayed with enthusiasm, with tears, with sincerity. And it looked like nothing happened to him. And he was still frustrated. He left. He went to his car. And before he got to the car, something happened. And he turned around and he came back in and he said, I got it. And then he just, he started praying in the spirit with what he had. And then he looked, you're like, And then he went to the next person. And he was just so excited. Why did this happen? Because young ones received, but they didn't want to stay in that constant juvenile state. They wanted to serve others. You see? And it was prepared beforehand from the Lord that they could do it. And so, you know, that greenhouse plant can't take care of others. But the grapevine can branch off. The olive tree can grow strong and thrive. And, and thank you for coming up and, yeah. and elaborating. I'm finished, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. You know how I know I'm finished? Because earlier, Sandy I said...
1: Let's stop.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and there are times when she'll go, you're like, okay, that's enough. And I'll go, (laughs) mm-mm. Forty years, yeah. (laughs) Let's close the service.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You grapevines and
0: olive trees. All you grapevines and olive trees, rise up, O grapevine of God and olive tree of God. Ye varechah Adonai The Lord bless you. The Lord keep watch over you and protect you. And the Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face to you and give you his peace. In the name of Yeshua, the vine. Amen. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Stay tuned to Solace Radio.
1: You're listening to Solace Radio, Monta Vista, Colorado. If you like the programming you hear on Solace Radio, please become a partner with us and donate any amount you'd like, and we'd sure appreciate it, and it helps us to reach more and more people around the world with this great message of hope. Thank you for listening to Solace Radio. Now back to our program.
2: But, you know, I was, I was, as I was preparing for this week, the question came to my mind. If I were to ask, kind of family feud style, you know, um, what um, what is the most significant miracle? What's the most important, significant miracle in the book of Daniel? You know, if I were to do family feud, say 100 people were surveyed and asked, what's the most significant miracle in the book of Daniel? What do you figure the answers would be? What would people say? Well, Daniel in the lion's den. That's a good one. We all know that one. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego we talked about a couple weeks ago. Surviving the fiery furnace without even being singed, without smelling any smoke. That one would definitely be near the top. Then, of course, in the next chapter, the handwriting on the wall. Remember? Well, you will. If you don't remember, we'll get there. It's memorable, wild stuff. Or when we went through in chapter 2, Daniel being able, king saying, Tell me what my dream was. And Daniel saying, and the Lord giving him the dream, that was pretty significant mirror. Here's what you dreamed. Here's what it means. This is an unprecedented, amazing stuff. Pick one. They're all great. As we go through the book of Daniel, we we've been focusing on the fact that God, not only is God present in the midst of exile, in the midst of pain, in the midst of being where I don't want to be. Just because I'm living in Babylon doesn't mean God isn't here. Just because it feels like he's not here doesn't mean he's not here. He is ever present in the midst of Babylon. He's present though with power. What can't what can't the God of Daniel do? Is there anything he can't do? Is anything too difficult for him? I mean, nothing's too hard for God, right? One of my favorite passages in the Bible is Jeremiah's declaration of praise in Jeremiah chapter 32, where he says, Ah, Lord God, you have made the heavens. Behold, I don't know. You have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing's too hard for you. So, which is the most significant miracle, the most important miracle in the book of Daniel? Lion's den, fiery furnace, handwriting on the wall. I'm going to give my opinion since I get to. (laughs) Let me suggest this morning that the miracle that is most important and significant in the book of Daniel is the miracle that we will see in the life of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. In fact, it is the same underlying miracle that the Lord is actually working to accomplish in his people through the exile. And that is the miracle of brokenness. More ac- I got the miracle of transformation through brokenness. Like this morning as I've been this message has been marinating in my heart i am i promise you i'm gonna go through it but i am like like right on the surface is just tears because it's such an important important thing that god wants to teach us here and do in us title of my message this morning is the miracle of brokenness This morning as we prepare to enter into Daniel 4 to look at the miracle of transformation through brokenness. The first point that needs to be made is one that distinguishes between the things that God uses as a means to an end versus the things that are an end in themselves. Is this the goal of God or is this a tool to accomplish the goal? Is it a means to an end or an end in itself? One of the shows that Rivka and I like, like to watch um, she likes it a lot, and I enjoy it. They entertain me. Um, is called Fixer Upper. And this couple, Chip and Joanna Gaines, uh, it's really Joanna and Chip Gaines, uh, <laughs> and help people by taking the worst homes in the best neighborhoods, and they go in and, uh, make those into people's dream homes. And at the beginning of the show, Joanna will explain the vision of the home. Like, she sees. She walks into a house and sees what you can do. And my wife actually has this sort of ability, too, that I'm like, I cannot see what you're talking about. (laughs) I'm not that kind. I don't have that. And so what they'll do, they'll show this picture of what it's going to look like when it's complete. There's a goal in mind. There's a picture and a vision of what the end result will be. And the goal that drives everything that they do in the home going forward is this picture at the end, this complete renovation transformation of this home. It's a means to an end. The demolition and destruction is not the goal. It's not a demolition and destruction show. It's a means to an end. They're breaking down walls, doing different things to get somewhere. The goal is transformation into something beautiful. If you don't know the goal, you might get distracted by all the little things that happen in the process. The tearing down of walls, the building of new, uniquely designed furniture. You know, they're building this amazing table that's that's being built. And this is awesome. But it's not a table building show. It's not about, you know, fixer-upper for table building show. It's not. That's part of what they're doing in this episode because of what needs to be happened in this home. And and sometimes we get fascinated by this. And we lose sight of the big picture. God's goal. The goal of his heart is to restore people unto himself. Concerning exile, the Lord had expressed this through his prophets um, over and over. In Jeremiah 32, he tells Jeremiah later in his prayer, he says, I'm doing this. I'm bringing this pain, he talks about what's going to happen, so that they will fear me forever, so that they will not depart from me. I'm doing this so that. Sometimes when it comes to what the Lord is doing, we focus on the things that stand out or the miracles that are astounding. The Lord told Daniel the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. Well, why did the Lord tell Daniel that? So that the Lord delivered the young men from the fiery furnace. Why? What's God ultimately seeking to accomplish? Because sometimes you don't get delivered from the furnace, by the way. So when he does it, there's a bigger reason that he's seeking, thing that he's seeking to accomplish. I mean, those miracles are amazing and they're wonderful, but they are not an end or a goal in themselves. They are a means to an end. They are working toward a goal. They're amazing miracles, memorable ones, but the most significant and important Miracle in the book of Daniel is the miracle of transformation through brokenness because transformation and restoration is what God does. That's his thing. That's his business. Right? I mean, God's not, he's not in the, uh I'm in the rescue from fire furnace, fiery furnace business. Anytime you need to get, if you're getting thrown in a fiery furnace, call me. He'll do it if he needs to, if it goes in line with what he's, what he's doing. But that, I'm not in the close the mouth of lions business. I'll do that if I have to, but I've got a bigger goal in mind. What I do is I transform people, he says. What I do is I take them and bring them unto myself. That's what I'm pursuing. He's in the redemption and transformation business. Fiery furnaces, lions, and Red Seas are are tools that he uses to accomplish what he's wanting to do. So first, as we prepare to enter into Daniel 4, we have to keep in mind always what God is doing. The goal of the Lord is to draw all men unto himself. To redeem us, to transform us. His heart is to make new, to restore his beloved humanity created in his image back into relationship with him. Second, we can't help but ask the question, but why through brokenness? What are you talking about through brokenness? There's a common saying that we've all heard that says, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. It's expressing this sense that the older people get, the more set in their ways they are, the less likely they are to change. There is this sense that at some point, people are who they are. And while certain behaviors may change, if only for a short time, the person himself, the person herself, isn't really going to change. Now, the younger a person is, the easier true change can be to accomplish. That's why the early years of child development are so critical. As children, and even into our teens and early adulthood, uh, we are soft clay moldable, we're being shaped, being formed. But as the years go by, the clay sets. It begins to form and harden. Its form becomes less and less changeable, and then seemingly unchangeable. The harder the clay, the more difficult, if not seemingly impossible, to change the change. When we're young, we don't get this. When we're young, we're hopeful. When we're young, we don't know what we're doing, and we and we know we don't know what we're doing, right? We we know that, and so we're learning. What do I? I don't know what to do. And so during the years, those years were soft and tender. We're open to molding. We're open to instruction. Open to being shaped. As the years go by, in different areas, we begin to think, "I got this. Ah, I know what I'm doing." Or even for some, you know what? This is what I like. This is what feels good to me, and I don't really care how it affects anybody else. And so soften softness begins to be hardened by the ingredients of pride and power or selfishness, self-reliance. And at times, the initial payoff of pride and power and selfishness and self-reliance may even feel good. It may feel like success. This is working for me. I like this. So through the years, soft clay becomes hardened. Wet cement becomes concrete. With the handprints from the past now set, those marks are there. Impossible, it seems, to softly mold or reshape anymore. Excuse me, my hair's getting in my face. One of the most painful and difficult realities that we deal with in our lives as we grow older is... As we lose that youthful optimism, that people will change. As we begin to have this pain and sense of despair that comes from the experience of the realization that people are who they are. We hope for change. We hope for transformation in me, in my, in ourselves, in others. And yet after a while, after repeated relational cycles of hope, followed by pain and disappointment, We can find ourselves coming to a place of resignation. She is who she is. He is who he is. I am who I am, like Papa, yeah? I am who I am, and that's all that I am. I'll never change. They'll never change. When we're young, we've only been growing and changing, so we launch into adulthood with this optimism that that will continue. Optimism and hope about ourselves. Optimism and hope about our loved ones. And sadly, for those who find themselves in very painful relational circumstances, at some point that optimism and hope becomes resignation or despair. Tried everything. It'll never change. It's impossible. I can't change me. I can't change you. Willpower won't do it. It may work for a while, but it won't transform me. It's like impossible. But the Lord says in Jeremiah 32, Behold, I am Adonai, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Yeshua said in Matthew 19, 26, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. We serve a God of miracles. We serve the God of the impossible. He can reform hardened clay. And in real life, one method that people use to soften hardened clay is to let it soak in oil for a while. If you take hardened clay, you let it soak in oil for a while. If it's not too hard, if it's not too set, it can soften. And I get the sense that the Lord's preferred method of reshaping hardened clay is to soak us, as it were, in oil. He sends the oil of his word, you know, the oil of his spirit. The, the, the oil in scripture is often connected with this, the, the Holy Spirit and with the priestly function. He's knowing that if the clay will respond to the oil... Reshaping will be less painful. Still difficult, takes time, but the softening through responding to the oil of his word and soften hardened clay so that there can be a reshaping. But sometimes when the hardened clay doesn't respond to the oil, the Lord will break the clay so he can now soften it and reshape it and start over. In his day. Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man on the face of the earth. There's a famous quote that says, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. Nebuchadnezzar was a man whose God, the scripture says, was his own strength. The Lord said of him to Habakkuk, his soul is not right within him. He was wicked and dangerous. He was unhinged and unpredictable. We cannot truly begin to comprehend the depths of the pride that gripped Nebuchadnezzar. Undoubtedly, anyone who knew him would have thought, he will never change. He's set in stone. A change, a real, heart deep, character deep, spirit deep, transformation in Nebuchadnezzar? That would be a miracle. I don't see that happening. That would be a miracle. Yeah, God can take guys out of a fiery furnace but i've met nebuchadnezzar and i can't even begin to imagine him ever changing that would be a miracle entering into daniel 4 we have to keep in mind the heart of god the goal of god is to restore and make new he does that sometimes using brokenness demolition The third thing that we see as we actually begin reading Daniel 4 is that brokenness is not not God's first resort for transformation in our lives. Usually, it's his last resort. Brokenness is God's last resort. I mean, with Israel, God had been calling out to them for centuries to turn back to him. He had been warning them repeatedly through the prophets that exile was coming if they didn't repent, if they didn't turn. Exile was not God's first resort. It was his last resort. And in the midst of what he was doing in the life of his people, transforming them in the midst of Babylonian exile, right? He's, He's. This is why they're in exile. You're here for me to reform you through the brokenness of 70 years in exile. And in the midst of that, the juggling, multitasking God that we serve is able to begin of doing a work in Babylon, in Nebuchadnezzar. When the exile began, Nebuchadnezzar knew nothing of Israel's God. And considering that he had just ransacked the city and taken things from the temple of the God of the Jewish people, he likely didn't have much respect for or regard for whoever this God was. But the God of Israel began reaching out to this pagan king. He began sending forth the oil of his word, the oil of his miracles to soften the king. I mean, it was the Lord who was speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, sending him the prophetic dream that freaked him out. And then the God of Israel came through in a miraculous and unprecedented way, revealing to Daniel the dream and interpretation. Now, that miracle made a dent in Nebuchadnezzar, but not a transformation. Ah, your God is the God of all gods, the Lord of all kings, he says. It was a short-term change, but not a character transformation. And then, of course, it was the Lord who showed up in the fire and not only kept the boys alive, he kept those boys from even getting the smell of smoke on them. Why? To show off? No. Because in the same moment that he was reassuring his people that he is the God of the universe and that he is present with them in Babylon, in that same moment, in that same act, he was revealing himself to Nebuchadnezzar and to the Babylonians and to the nations. And now chapter 4 begins in a shocking way. It begins actually with the first person perspective of Nebuchadnezzar. Most of chapter four, except for a few verses, are spoken, maybe written by Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, he's either writing this or dictating it. Verse one. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I had a dream that frightened me. <laughs> While on my bed, the images and visions in my mind terrified me. So I issued a decree. To bring all the wise men of Babylon before me, so that they could make known to me the meaning of the dream. When the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and diviners came in, I recounted the dream to them, but they were unable to make known its interpretation to me. Finally, Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and whom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, came in before me, and I told him the dream. So again, the Lord comes to Nebuchadnezzar with a dream. He calls the same guys as before, right? The astrologers, magicians, etc. Tells them the dream this time, but either they can't figure its meaning, which I'm not buying, by the way, or they can, they know, they get a sense of the meaning. They just don't have the courage to reveal the meaning. So as the chapter continues, he recounts the dream to Daniel. It was a dream about a huge tree, a tree that reached up to the heavens, a tree that extended to the ends that you could see it from the end of the earth, and all the animals were safe under the tree, and the food, the fruit from the tree fed everyone. It was great, this amazing tree. Then a messenger comes down from heaven and says, cut it down. And the messenger continues, verse 12, yet leave a stump with its roots in the earth. In fetters of iron and bronze, in the tender grass of the field, let him be damp with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the animals in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be altered from that of a man and let an animal's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. So we hear the dream. And in the dream itself, the messenger in the dream actually gives the meaning of the dream. I mean, the messenger in the dream turns from talking about the tree to talking about a man whose mind would be altered from that of a man to an animal's. So the meaning of it was clear. The question is, who? I think Nebuchadnezzar might have a good idea. Of who the flourishing tree is. I think his wise men. May. Think. I think I don't want to tell you what I think that means. Yeah. I mean he may rip them limb by limb. Because he likes to talk about doing that. And tear their houses down to rubble. So never. I think Nebuchadnezzar's problem was not that he didn't like. What he may have already understood. Of God's word in the dream. He he, he didn't like what he may have understood. So he's like uh, somebody tell me. Tell me it's something that I want to hear. Verse 16. Then Daniel, whose name is also Belteshazzar, was perplexed. And, and perplexed is in some versions, it also the word is appalled. It can be translated appalled. He was appalled like you'd heard it. He was appalled for a brief time. His thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, don't let the dream or the interpretation disturb you. But Belteshazzar replied, my lord, may the dream be for those who hate you. And it's interpretation for your enemies. In a few verses, we come to find that Daniel knew the meaning of the dream. But like a compassionate doctor with bad news, Daniel first let the king know, I wish this weren't what it meant. You know, may the dream be about your enemies. The dream is a dream about judgment. This king that wrought destruction upon Daniel's people is about to face judgment himself. But the heart of Daniel doesn't somehow relish the moment. He's not withholding a secret delight about being able to deliver such news. He's not going, praise the Lord, sinners are being judged. uh... (laughs) After what he did to my family, to my people, get him, God. Daniel expresses the compassion of the Lord. For the Lord, judgment is his last resort. Joel 2, we've read it many times, Adonai, your God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abundant, overflowing in chesed and mercy, and relenting about the calamity that's due. It's due. And he just wants to hold it back. God's not licking his chops, waiting for Nebuchadnezzar to mess up. Nebuchadnezzar's only ever messed up. God's been patient, leading him along. But the message hasn't penetrated the concrete of Nebuchadnezzar's proud heart. His strength is his God to the extent that miracles haven't even turned him from his self-idolatry. And so Daniel comes not just with the word of God, but communicating the heart of God. Daniel says, O king, I wish this weren't for you. But it is, and I have to speak forth the truth. And he says in verse 19, it is you, O king. For you have grown great and mighty. Verse 21, it is the decree of the Most High that has come upon my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will dwell with the wild animals. You will feed on grass like an ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time will pass over you until you know that the Most High is sovereign over the realm of mankind and gives it to whomever he wishes. The King command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you as soon as you understand that heaven is sovereign. So Daniel explains the dream, but in his explanation, he reveals the mercy of God. He reveals, makes known the heart of God. God's left a stump on purpose. God doesn't delight in judgment. He delights in mercy. He's giving another, another opportunity for Nebuchadnezzar to realize who he is. Nebuchadnezzar is deluded by his grandeur. He is deceived and deluded and held captive by his pride. He is absolutely drunk on power and pride and is convinced that everything that he has is by his power and by his own strength, by his own ingenuity, by his own leadership skills. Walking in recognition of him, of his greatness, of his mercy and love. Walking in submission to the true king is where life begins. Lose your life, lay down your pride and you'll find life cling to your pride hold on to it dearly cling to your own God yourself and you will lose it all if you let it go you'll gain real life if you hold on everything you think by your own power that you can hold on to you will lose all of it the very pride that you believe protects you is destroying you. The very thing you think you're safeguarding is what it will cause you to lose. So Nebuchadnezzar is being given a dream of judgment that is really a dream of hope. Because the tree is not being taken out of the ground by the roots and thrown into fire. There's a stump of hope. There's still hope. Just as soon as he understands that God is sovereign in the depth of his heart, Nebuchadnezzar has truly believed that this flourishing tree is his own de- doing. And the Lord says, I'm going to make clear to you just how not in control you are. I'm going to make it abundantly clear, painfully clear, that you are not sovereign, that you are not king. I am. And as soon as you recognize that, as soon as you truly understand it. Not an intellectual understanding. Not a mental ascent. Okay, you're sovereign. But when you get it in the very depth of your being, in the depth of your spirit, when you really understand He is sovereign. Not me. When I really get that, then then When I go, I am not truly ruler. You're sovereign. I bow before you. I surrender to you, Almighty. Lord says, as soon as that happens, I'll restore your kingdom to you. And with compassion and with deference, Daniel respectfully appeals to the king, suggesting that perhaps, perhaps if you would respond, O king, as it were, to the oil of God's word, if you would respond by turning from your sin, and walking in righteousness, perhaps your prosperity will be prolonged. Perhaps if you will now respond to the warning of the dream and what I'm telling you now, perhaps this destruction, this severing, can be averted. He says in verse 24, there, O O king, may my counsel be acceptable to you. Renounce your sins through righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps your prosperity will be prolonged. See, brokenness is the Lord's last Desperate attempt, his loving and desperate last resort to say stave off destruction in your life, he gives opportunity after opportunity, even to the point of there being one last shot to avoid this suffering. He is gracious, patient beyond comprehension. At this point in the chapter, the narrator changes from Nebuchadnezzar back to probably to Daniel because this is where Nebuchadnezzar goes nuts. And so someone else has to write about this. Verse 25, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 26, at the end of 12 months, as he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, we'll finish the rest in a second. So 12 months, next year goes by, and and I'm perhaps, and the judgment doesn't happen in those 12 months. It doesn't happen the next day, it's 12 months. And perhaps initially, perhaps Nebuchadnezzar responded to Daniel's urging. I mean, if there's one thing Nebuchadnezzar doesn't, want to lose if there's one thing he loves besides himself because it's all tied together it's his kingdom it's his power this is his identity he loves this he doesn't want to lose that and daniel's god has proven to be credible so he's kind of afraid that this dream is coming to pass so he starts making some surface changes gonna start doing some things perhaps he does as daniel suggests and starts a mercy for the poor program in his government perhaps he does just enough to stave off judgment at least for this year but the fourth thing that we see and the last thing this morning is that god's not satisfied with anything less than genuine heart deep spirit deep transformation god is not as concerned about the things we tell and show others what we will see next is that he's really concerned about the conversation I'm having with myself. What am I telling me? Spirit deep transformation is what he's after. The things that we tell ourselves. Verse 26, at the end of 12 months, as he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, the king exclaimed, and the NASV says he reflected, Is this not the great Babylon? That I have built is my royal residence by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty. The words were still in the king's mouth when a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, it has been decreed to you that your kingdom has been removed for you, from you. Years gone by, and Nebuchadnezzar is on the roof of his royal palace. He's surveying the grandeur of Babylon, and he's reflecting, telling himself, "There's no one really around. Maybe some of his servants, but you know, he's not paying." It's like being alone. He's out his own palace. He's out there. He either exclaims or reflects, or one of the two, something along those lines. And he says, "Look what I have done. I built this. It's for my majesty. It's for my glory." And boom. While the words are still in his mouth, the judgment falls. What's interesting to me. Is that the judgment had been foretold now. This judgment that, that has happened, it happened not with Nebuchadnezzar in the public eye. It didn't happen in the middle of him making a speech before the people. He loved to make these pronouncements, right? He loved, it didn't happen while he made a pronouncement. It happened in private. It happened when he was alone, congratulating himself, telling himself, man, what I did. No one else did this. I did it. See, sometimes we know the right things to say. We know that we are not to take the glory or the credit for the blessings in our lives. I know better than to stand up here and go, look what I did. I did all this. I know better than that. The question is, when I'm alone with me, do I go, look what I did. I did this. It was me. That's the question. The real question. It's not what I'm projecting to everyone else because this is what I want them to see. You know, we had this idea, this, we hear this phrase, perception is reality. Okay? And the reason we say that is because all of us only perceive. Right? You, you, I don't, all I have is a perception of reality. And we are all, we all have different perceptions. But when it comes to God, there's no perception. He sees reality. And so we are convinced that the perception that we are putting out there is truth. We convince ourselves that this is truth. But he's not fooled by the perception. God doesn't look on, see us the way we see ourselves. God looks deeper. Don't look on the outward appearance. God looks upon the heart. What's the question? The question is, what am I telling me about me? We may publicly do all the right things. Express all the acceptable and appropriate things to others. We may publicly say, God this, God that, but that isn't really what the Lord is concerned about. Lots of people say lots of wonderful God things in public. (laughs) Apparently, what really matters to God is what's actually happening in our in our hearts. What is it that we're telling ourselves about ourselves? And it may be, and I'm only speculating here, that Nebuchadnezzar is saying all the right things in front of Daniel going through the motions of repentance. But when he gets alone, he's saying to himself, you know, what's he saying to himself? Is he having an internal conversation that is still in rebellion against the lordship and the rulership and the sovereignty of God in his life? Is he pulling aside and going, God didn't do this. I did this. Yes, oh, God, God is sovereign.
1: God didn't do this.
2: I did this. you remember know when you were a little kid? You remember when you were a kid, and you get in trouble, or even as an adult, you have, you're in a situation with someone who's in authority over you, and they s- tell you something, and you just have to bite your tongue. You remember that feeling where you're like, okay. But at some point, you have to. You you find yourself going alone and doing that grumble, mumble thing. Where you're like, I don't. I don't do I'll, I'll hear one of my like. I have one particular very vocal child. All all of them are vocal in different ways, but I have one that really has to get it out. Will go into. I won't even specify gender we'll go into the room and we'll be like having a loud conversation I'm ah, blah 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 I'm ah, blah blah and, uh, and I'll hear this cuz that's really what's going on inside whats what is that thing that makes us like where we I mean you know like I'm I I was one of these have to have the last word kind of guys way long ago and there's this thing and I'm I'm suspecting it's connected to my pride there's this thing that when I disagree that I have to say some passive like well, whatever. <laughs> like even if I like I'm I'm walking over to myself, well whatever I I and I'm lying to myself and telling myself I don't I don't really believe that. So God's saying by the way, it's the heat it's like hot all of a sudden. He just came on, can we cool it down? Um I'm not trying to bring a sermon illustration of the heat. God is saying He's pointing out what's going, he sees what's going on. And we have to be honest with ourselves. We have to be honest about who we are. Not just saying the right things. Those things that I tell myself when I'm alone with myself, that's who I really am. And that's the condition that God's interested in. That's what he sees. He's not as concerned with the public perception of you and me. He's concerned with the reality of you and me. And the reality of Nebuchadnezzar was still I'm the sovereign of the ba- of Babylon the Great. Me, my, I am king. And it was in that moment, in that private moment of pride, of refusal to submit to God and to acknowledge that the Lord is sovereign and in charge on the roof of his private palace that God said, okay, there's really only one way that this man is going to truly change. In his heart of hearts. There's only one way. That he's going to have a genuine recognition. Of who he is and who I am. I've exhausted every other option. I must now take away. That which is most precious to him. It's the only true chance he has. At redemption. He must be broken. And that breaking. The exile. The judgment. Whether it be Judah's 70-year exile in Babylon or Nebuchadnezzar's seven-year, we think seven years, seven periods of time, exile. Whether or not that seems unkind, right? It seems unkind. It seems even maybe cruel and over the top. This, why are you make him like an animal, Lord? But don't misunderstand the purpose of the breaking, of the demolition. God's not destroying to destroy. God is renovating something. He's transforming something. And if the walls are so rotten underneath that quick fixes and paint jobs won't repair what repair what's really going on, then he has to rip it out. Then demolition must occur. The breaking and the demolition and the judgment seems, feels like a plan to do harm. But as the Lord said to Judah when they found out just how long this exile was going to be, he says, don't misunderstand because after the judgment is complete, in verse 10 of Jeremiah 29, he says, I will visit you and fulfill my good word toward you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have in mind for you, declares Adonai. Plans for shalom and not calamity to give you a future and a hope. The brokenness, the pain, this is for your good. And we're like a child saying, how can you say spagging me means you love me? Feels very different. The Lord's not trying to do a surface work in the people of Judah or in Nebuchadnezzar. And he's not trying to do touch up work in you and in me. He is committed to truly transforming us into who he's calling us to be. God's not as interested in what you and I are here in front of one another. What matters to him is not the image that we project for the world to see. Our PR, our public relations. What matters to him is who you and I really are when no one is watching. What he's concerned about is the story we're telling ourselves about ourselves when we are alone with ourselves. Are we saying, God, I need you in front of everyone, but in our hearts saying, I don't need anyone. When my inner man isn't truly transforming into God's image, even if it's a slow transform transformation when i'm so set in my way so hardened in my heart that it seems impossible that i'll change then the god of the impossible sets in and sets in motion a potential miracle and the reason it's a potential miracle is because we still have to respond to it some people respond to brokenness the way pharaoh did and get harder and get and self destruct some people respond to brokenness to the opportunities. And the revelation talks about the judgment of God and these people, instead of repenting, shake their fists at God. And I read it, I go, are you stupid? What are you thinking? But there's this blindness, this pride that's such a monster, that's so blinding that it can harden us. Don't let your heart be hardened. It's a potential miracle that he sets in place, the miracle of brokenness. A painful but necessary miracle. Verse 30, immediately the word of Nebuch- about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was dr- driven away from men, ate grass like an ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Talk about a humiliating descent. This powerful and mighty king, this man who'd been calling the shots for decades, people cower before him. He inspires fear and awe sycophants have been surrounding him his whole life and telling him just how wonderful and amazing he is. All he's ever known is power and glory and victory. All he's ever known is opulence and extravagance. It's pomp and standing ovations. People bow when he says bow. He is Nebuchadnezzar. What does it take to change a man like that? To truly change him. What? How can God change a man like that? Long term, spirit deep, true character change. What can produce that? A good talking to? Maybe an extravagant display of God's power? I wish. But miraculous displays didn't do much for Pharaoh, didn't do much for King Ahab, or to this point even for Nebuchadnezzar. But this mighty king is now roaming the fields like a wild animal, eating grass, hair like eagle's wings, nails like bird's claws, complete breakdown, a complete, utter, total, humiliating breakdown. And not for a short time, seven periods of time, likely seven years. It's interesting in the midst of Judah's 70 years, you have a seven years for Nebuchadnezzar. And once that lengthy time of being completely out of control, of having lost everything is complete, Nebuchadnezzar's pride has truly been broken. There is now no question, even in the deepest part of his heart, about who is in charge, about who is sovereign. He's not like, okay, fine, I'll tell you what you want to hear, but I'm king, I'm king, I'm king. No, not anymore. Verse 31, but at the end of the appointed days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes up to heaven, and my sanity returned to me. So I blessed the Most High, and I praised, and I honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. He does as he wills with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that moment, my sanity returned to me and my majesty and my splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. My ministers and nobles sought me out and I was reestablished over my kingdom. I became even greater than before. Verse 34, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven. Because all his works are right and his ways just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. And this is, this is the way the story of Nebuchadnezzar ends in the scriptures. Nebuchadnezzar says, all his works are right and his ways just. Him saying that is true submission. He's saying, I needed him. I needed the Lord to do this to me. It's kind of like, Um, because my dad was a prison chaplain, you know, I would go in growing up and I'd be with these guys in the prison. And so many of them at their, they're at their rock bottom broken. And they say, I needed this. I'm thankful. God let it did allow this to happen. He saved my life. I'm thankful that I'm here. This was a good thing. I deserved this and needed it. That, sent that humility, that breaking that comes to the point of saying, "I now I see who I was and I see who you are. Nothing else would have done it. Nebuchadnezzar now realizes, what else could have broken? It could have broken that part of me. What was it going to take? God was right. He was just. He has succeeded. He has succeeded with me. Other than something as extreme as this temporary judgment that Nebuchadnezzar faced, what could have possibly brought a true miraculous character change in Nebuchadnezzar other than the pain and suffering of brokenness. Other than the loss of the gods that he had placed above God. The gods of his strength and power and prestige and dignity. The miracle of transformation through brokenness is a significant miracle. An amazing, important miracle. Because the heart of God is to transform, to make new, to shape us into his image To restore us into right relationship with him. Sometimes after he's exhausted every option. He finally will allow us to lose that which is most precious to us. In hope that we will respond. So that he can perform a miracle of transformation in us. Not because he desires to hurt us. But because he loves us. And wants to heal and transform us. And to make us new. On some point. At some point on, on, on some level, we all have to experience a level of brokenness. Hopefully for most of us, we can respond to the softening of the Holy Spirit, to the call of His Word, to the conviction of His Spirit for our sin. My pastor from Missouri, Pastor Sam, is one of the most tender-hearted men I've ever met. When we lived in Missouri, I remember thinking, this guy cries at every service. I, I would sit there and in my growing hardness of heart, in my increasing cynicism, in my increasing kind of jaded trust in my own mind and intellect, trusting in my ways and not in God's, giving God verbal assent, but in the heart of my heart of hearts, gradually, unknowingly growing in my pride, unaware, of the hardening that was happening. I would see him cry. And I'd be like. Good grief. He poked the guy and he cries. Is this even real? Is he being manipulative? I didn't. You know there was a part of me. And then I would talk to the man. And. It was so real. He was so real. <laughs> and he's this. I bring him up because he's this beautiful. Just beautiful. Everything about him. He's tender and loving and reflects the love of God and the heart of God. He's strong and yet a man of God, a tender man of God. But there was a pastor Sam that I never met. There was a pastor Sam who was a pastor at the largest, uh, at the, like the, the flagship congregation within our denomination, within the assemblies of God. And he was a pastor there. And he describes to me how proud he had become. How proud he had become. How hardened he had become. And he had a fall. He lost his ministry. And he lost his dignity. He nearly lost his family. He lost so much. And in that season of brokenness. The Holy Spirit crushed up the hard stuff and reformed him, and made something amazing, so that when I meet him, when I talk to him, and I call him relatively regularly, and he just ministers life and love and he's just and, and straightforward truth, um his testimony. His story is not something about the failures of his past, right? He he doesn't bear the shame of his fall. He radiates the beauty of redemption and restoration. The brokenness, the tenderness before God is a miracle, and it's beautiful. And yet, and if you've encountered pride... And stubborn, I will not let God. The results are so ugly. Have you ever been talking to someone and you wish, I wish they could see themselves. I wish I could see myself in my worst moments. So that I wouldn't do that again. Has your heart grown hard? Are you regularly ignoring the prodding of the Holy Spirit? Are you resistant to his insistence that you lay down that which is most precious to you? That you lay down your pride. That you lay down your gods that you have put before him. Do you really think that you can resist his will? What is it that keeps you from bowing your five foot something or six foot something frame before the eternal creator? Who holds the galaxies in his hands. Don't you think that's foolish? Like if you saw that on a movie. If there was like a... little. Nar! You will not defeat me! <laughs> like what? Like that's silly. And yet it's so devastating and blinding. Who do we think we are? What is it that keeps us from submitting and bowing our aging and decaying hearts before the God who is eternal and never ages? Who do we think we are? What keeps us from doing that? Nebuchadnezzar was just one of however many people in the world. That's that's who I am, but I'm a child of God, a son, children of God. Can we surrender and lay down our self-destructive pride, or will we foolishly cling to it? Ignore his voice until the Lord finally has to allow us to experience a per- experience a crushing and devastating personal loss in order to bring us to brokenness and in brokenness in the pain. Will you surrender and let God make you a beautiful testimony of transformation? Will you be, will you be able to be like the ugly caterpillar who went through the death of cocoon and came out looking nothing like that ugly caterpillar? Like when I, when I, When Pastor Sam describes who he was, I go, I I can't imagine that. When when Charlie describes who he was, when he tells me about who he was, I don't see it because there's a brokenness here and tenderness. And you can push Charlie, tears will just flow out of his eyes because he's been broken. Because we're being broken because he loves us. And in that, he holds us and he reshapes us. He says, look at what I'll do. Look what I'll do. Look what I'll make you into. Look what I'll form you into. What is that thing? Why can't I go? Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And keep saying yes in those difficult moments. What is that thing? Break it in me, Lord. Crush, crush the pride. Keep it. Find those hard spots and break them. And make them new and make them soft. And make me a... As- of flesh. Give me a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. Reform me. Soften your heart. Return to the Lord. Marinate in the oil of His presence. Respond to the oil of His word. He is gracious and compassionate and calling to you. Slowed anger, abounding in mercy, relenting of the calamity. Do I don't want to do this. He says. Walk in brokenness. Walk in humility. Don't wait for the last resort. Stop it. In Psalm 51, King David at his lowest point, having been confronted about his sin by, by Nathan the prophet, he says, Lord, surely you desire truth in the inner being. Make me know wisdom inwardly. You know, he said, here's my heart, Lord. Speak what is true. You want truth in the inner being. Help me to stop fooling myself. Deal with something deep in verse 19 of Psalm 51. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God. You will not despise. Every head bowed and every eye closed this morning. God loves. You, and he loves me. and He loves us, and in his love for us. The scripture says, do not despise the Lord's discipline. And don't even misunderstand it. Because a father disciplines the children that he loves. The Lord calls to us, and he wants us to respond just to the call. Just respond to the word. Respond to his overtures. He's relenting of the calamity due. He loves you so much. Will you truly lay down your life? Will you truly submit your heart? Will you truly give him control? Will you truly die to your flesh and let him live within? Will you truly say, Lord, I surrender to you. You are the sovereign of my life. And when you're alone with yourself, say, You are the sovereign of my life. I am nothing without you. I'm lost without you. This morning, Let God begin his miracle in you. Don't let it get to a place like what Nebuchadnezzar had to go through.
0: No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Find the Savior. Find Yeshua Hamashiach. Find the truth on Solace Radio.
3: Today's message is called Recon Mission, The Ties That Bind. Recon mission, the ties that bind. You know, when, when we were going through this portion, every time we read, the portion is called, uh, Lecha, uh, which is send on your behalf. And it take, it's taken from that verse that says in chapter 13 of, by Midbar of Numbers, send men on your behalf to reconnoiter the land of Canaan. And I always stumble over that word and I wanted to make sure that I was pronouncing it correctly and so I went onto my iPhone and I looked on the dictionary and it has the pronunciation on there but in looking at the listening for the pronunciation I also decided that it was worthwhile to look at the definition too and I found something very interesting I I kept saying to myself over the years why did he choose this word? Why didn't he say survey the land, uh, check out the land? Uh, some other word because it's such a, 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 a word that is not really used by most people in the English language. But I found something interesting about the choice of words, the choice of word in this case. Listen to the definition that it says because normally we think of it, take a survey of the land tell us what you find in it give us details and bring back a report but it says this the first item to inspect observe or survey the enemy the enemy's strengths and position a region etc in order to gain information information in order to gain information for military purposes now when you think about it it is also talking about examine or survey uh, as a, an engineer or, ge- or a, or a geological, uh, purpose might entail. But this element of the military side of it just hit me in a whole different way. Because the use of this word, reconnoiter, is something that just brought a whole wave of understanding about what was being commanded when they went forward. This is also where you get the word reconnaissance. It's where you get the word reconnaissance, when you go out to get information about your enemy troops, to find out what's going on there, to see and know them. And I mentioned before that in um, uh, The Art of War, they, they talk about uh, knowing your enemy, knowing yourself, knowing your strengths, knowing the weaknesses, because it gives you an advantage to be able to move forward. It isn't for the purpose of gathering information about your enemy so that you can come back and tell everybody, It's hopeless. It's to bring advantage so you know how to approach the battle plan. And so when we look at this, it was, of course, going to be a battle plan because God brought our people out of Egypt, not just to set our people free from slavery, but also to bring them into another land into a place of their own, into a habitation where they could be fruitful and multiply and their families could increase and prosper. And they could be as a testimony of a people on this earth that the world could look and say, this is the people that God brought out of the land of Egypt. These are the people of God. And so when they would look at it, there was this element in play. And so there is very much a military strategy involved here. But what we see in the process, and the reason why I say recon mission, the ties that bind, when you go to the end of this portion, it ends in Bamidbar with uh, an interesting passage. We talk about the fringes on the corners of our garments. In chapter 15 of Bamidbar, it says in verse 37, Hashem said to Moshe, speak to the people of Israel and instruct them to make through all their generations tzitzit or tzitziot on the corners of their garments and to put with the tzitzit on each corner a blue thread, to It is to be a tzitzit for you to look at and thereby remember all of Hashem's mitzvot and obey them so that you won't go around wherever your own heart and eyes lead you to prostitute yourselves. But it will help you remember and obey all my mitzvot and be holy for your God I am Hashem, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt in order to be your God. I am Hashem, your God. To be your God, it wasn't also just to bring them out of the land and bring them into the land, but to bring them into a land where He would reign over them, that He would be the focal point, that He would make His habitation among the people and that their lives would be benefited because The king of all creation was in the midst of the people. This was his intent. And he made provision for them. And they wore the tzitzit as a reminder to not follow their own impulses and be led astray or be led literally into prostitution with the gods of the land. But to be circumspect and focused, like tying a string around your finger to remember something. In this case, it's to remember to obey God to remember to walk in his statutes, to remember to walk in a manner that would be pleasing to him. And when he sent the people out, he picked out leaders. It says in verse two, it says uh, that they're going to go into the land. And he says, from each ancestral tribe, send someone who is a leader in his tribe. Why did he pick leaders? Because you wanted to have people who had reputation, people who had the ability to rally others, people who had a way to bind people together, to tie them into a cause, into a mission. And the recon would be to bring back the information and then they as leaders would be able to come together and strategize how God was going to open the door for them and they would instruct every one of the people under their leadership. there was a problem you see you can choose it says recon mission the ties that bind in a way those fringes are like an element that ties us to obey the Lord to remember to obey him and not go astray to not let our entire life unravel but to bind us together for a purpose to bind us to the Lord so that his purpose and plan will be successful in our lives so that we can move forward in what God's called us to do. But there is another kind of binding that takes place. And that is one that encumbers us. One that kind of brings us down in chains, so to speak, and stops forward movement, movement, and, and causes us to be held captive. And often it comes from the same place. People. Some bring back a report and have encouraged the people to take on the impossible and to move forward because their leadership stands firm, bound to one another, like brothers together in a band, a band of brothers coming together again in military fashion. When you look at the training that Marines go through and the military go through, they are like one cohesive unit. They have to be able to go through the troubles and the trials of all of the boot camp and all of the training, which seems to be relentless and very demoralizing sometimes in so many ways. And yet when they are in places where they are pressed because of fire coming on them and, and, and people firing on them and, and they're in a stress situation, they will not leave their brother behind. They will do what it takes. They'll do extraordinary things because they have ties that bind them. A common focus, a common purpose. And if there is a breakdown, the breakdown happens not just for the one person, but throughout the ranks. That was the whole story about the 300 that they spoke of. When they would come together, they could fight off tens of thousands because they were one cohesive unit. And when they would pull their armor together, it was a shell that could not be broken. And the sword was there only in the case of an emergency. Because they didn't want to have, to have that hand-to-hand combat. If they worked in unity together, that was the backup plan if something broke down. But when they did, they were able to do and fight off larger armies than themselves, to fight off numbers much greater, lacking the discipline that they had built together with the turmoil and the trials and, and the training that they went through. And so, God was trying to establish these elements. And the key place where people would miss out and find themselves bound to something that's wrong is if they didn't bind themselves to what was right. Binding themselves to the Lord by understanding His precepts, by walking with a heart of obedience, by understanding and rehearsing and encouraging each one within their community to walk boldly into the things that God called them to. Because if we don't have that encouragement, we find ourselves bound to depression, bound to despair, bound to look and say there are giants in the land instead of saying, like Caleb and Joshua, sure, there are giants. The land is great. Would they come back with in the report first? The report was, yeah, the land's great. There's a lot of fruit there. It's wonderful. But there are giants in the land. And we were like, Insects, we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in theirs. And they discouraged the people and bound them to a negative mindset that caused them not to be able to enter into the land themselves, though their children following would. There is something about our words and something about understanding the people that we are connected to. You know, if there is a breakdown within the body, it needs to be addressed. If there was a breakdown, it needs to be reconciled because ultimately when you look at it, they were all in the same boat. They're looking for the Lord to move in their behalf. It's just that some of them were unable to see past a certain point. And so instead of going to someone else and saying, Moses, I got a problem here. We went, we got the report. I don't know how to spin this or how to work it. You need to help us on this because here's the report. Here's the good stuff that happened that we saw. Here's the stuff that was troubling to us. They didn't do that. They came back and immediately vented all of their own lack of faith, all of their insecurity and all of their frailties and all of their discouragement, and they infected the entire community. Now, when you look at this portion in Matthew, Yeshua instructs his disciples to go forward. The passage that was read, he said, pay attention, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves, so be as prudent as snakes and as harmless as doves. Now, the concept here is not to say, hey, there's enemies out there, guys. There are people who want to bring you into the synagogue in chains. There are people, this is not why he mentions this. He is not saying to them, in a way, if they took the message from this, it said, on account on my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as a testimony to them, uh, and to the Goyim, and, and they'll, 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 they'll bring you, uh, it says, um, uh, um, they'll bind you and they'll bring you there, and it, it it'll, it sounds so discouraging. Uh, you know, he says, um, anyway, it, it, it talks about, uh, this, and you could get the idea that it is a, it would be a very discouraging thing. Who would want to come on board if Yeshua said, here's what's going to happen. I need people to come with me. who are going to be disciples. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go into the areas. I want you to go out two by two. I want you to go out and share. I want you to heal, deliver, and set free. I want you to let them know I'm coming, and here's what's going to happen to you. They will put you in prison. They will beat you. They will flog you. Are you ready to join me now? What? <laughs> Wouldn't you just be excited to get on board with that? So he's not obviously telling him to discourage them. He's saying, look, it doesn't matter if there are giants in the land. It doesn't matter if there are those who don't understand the work that you're called to do. It doesn't matter if they understand and think you're an enemy when you are bringing the source of life for them. It doesn't matter you go forward and bind yourself to the Lord and to what he says. And in the process, you will bring about a transformation throughout the region, even if the region itself says we're not interested. It's just words. But if they are words enough to discourage us from going forward, the seed never gets planted, the word never goes forward, and people are not transformed. They remain in their bondage because we get discouraged and not tell what God has given us to do. In a way, this is like another. We talk about the Great Commission at the end of the book of Mattis, Yahu. But this is a first commission. He tells them to go into the territories. He says in verse 5 of chapter 10 of Matthew, these 12 Yeshua sent out with the following instructions. Don't go into the territory of the Goyim and don't enter any town in Shamron, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Even then, the purpose was to go to the Jewish people. It wasn't limited to that, except that this time it was, because the focal point was to create the sense of God's movement that had been started from the beginning. The church today is not an afterthought of God. Some theologies talk about a parenthetical, 2000-year parenthetical addition, that God said, my plan didn't work, what am I going to do? Go plan B. Plan B, let me give it to the goyim, let me give it to the nations. I'll ease up on all these rules and regulations. I must have made it too hard for the Jewish people. So we'll make it easy on them. Simple things, love everybody, and let's call it a day. And we'll call it something new. You'll be now the Israel of God, and the others forget it. It was too hard. (laughs) There was always from the beginning, there was no plan B. How would you feel growing up if you were told you were not really wanted? But we had no alternative. What we really wanted didn't work out. And so we settled for you. (laughs) I mean, what kind of a loving testimony is that? But in Abraham's seed, it says all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It was always God's plan to go to the Jews first and then bring it to the nations as a testimony of God reconciling the world to himself. It started with them going forward. And then if you look in here, he says, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Expel demons. Bring healing. Bring deliverance. And then he says the passage of verse 16. Pay attention. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. So be as prudent as snakes and as harmless as doves. He's not telling them to identify the wolves. He's not telling them to say, yeah, there's a lot of people out there wanting to devour me. There's a lot of people out there fighting me. We're going to press on and go through anyway. We're going to try and make it, even though we're wearied and heavy burdened. He's not saying to be complaining about the fact that there are those out there. Yes, there were giants in the land. Yes, there were those who don't agree with us. Yes, there are those who even are vehement in their actions sometimes towards us. But it doesn't mean we respond in like manner. We see the bigger picture. And that is why when you have people who are called by the name of the Lord who have conflict, get it resolved. You're on the same team. Figure it out. Make it work. Because we've got to come to terms with it. And here's what he says. It's interesting. I I love actually in the version here in Luke 10. In Luke 10, it's one of my favorite verses in the it's one of my favorite passages in the complete Jewish Bible, the way he puts this. But he describes this now not just the twelve, but the seventy. In chapter 10 of Luke, verse 1, he says, After this, the Lord appointed 70 other Talmudim and sent them on ahead in pairs to every town and place where he himself was out, about to go. He said to them, Be sure, to be sure, there is a large harvest, but there are few workers. Now here is the thing. He's not complaining that there are too few workers. What he wants people to do with the numbers that he has is to be effective. It doesn't take a lot to see the power of God move. Marlene was sharing on Thursday, there was a woman that she met, a girl from an Orthodox background, who came to the Lord. And she said that she was going to be sharing with her Orthodox Jewish friend, and he was going to come to the Lord. You know, the young, zealous kind of faith that just happens to believe that that can happen, doesn't know yet about all of the obstacles and all the challenges and all those that are out there wanting to bring you into the synagogue to persecute you. I mean, didn't know it. And you know what? He accepted the Lord. And then he went to two of his friends in the community and they accepted the Lord. There is something contagious about bringing a report when you reconnoitre the land, when you go in to be able to put together an understanding not only of what resources are there, but how God wants us to approach those who are in our camp and those who are enemies, to be able to not see it that way, but to be able to figure out from the Spirit of God the strategy for bringing deliverance to people's lives. And so he tells them, go out, and here's what he says, He tells them to go about and do this. He says, be sure there's a large harvest, but there are few workers. Therefore, plead with the Lord of harvest that he speed workers out to gather in the harvest. Get going now, but pay attention. I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Don't carry a money belt or a pack and don't stop to schmooze with people on the road. One of the biggest distractions we have is to stop the forward motion of what he tells them to do by talking about what we think we were going to do, what we think we're going to do, what we think we're going to be, what we think we could, it produces nothing except stops going and telling people like he said to do. And, you can imply that the, sh- the schmooze is like a comfortable talking to one another and getting into dialogue, and but it can also be the kind of dialogue that begins to compete with each other, that begins to question, say, you know, hey, did you see? We went out there and and, and eyes, blind eyes were open. We had four people, blind eyes were open. We had six, and we had two people with legs that grew. You know, really, well, we had... Seven, I mean, you could go back and forth over comparing notes as to what your performance looked like. But it wasn't our performance that was important. It was paying attention to what he gave them as a uh, as a mandate to go forward. To be able to go forward and ultimately what it says also was this. He said to go two by two in every town and place where he himself was about to go. They were preparing the way, but not just with flyers, not just with handouts. They were going there by saying, you have a need of healing. I'd like to pray for you in the name of Yeshua, be healed. They went out to prepare the way for Yeshua so that when he came through, there was an understanding of what his ministry would be and what he was demonstrating in advance. Now, if they argued along the way, how much effectiveness would they have? Or if they argued with people who wouldn't give them lodging, how much effectiveness would they have? He went on to say, whenever you enter a house, first say shalom to the household. If a seeker of shalom is there, your shalom, uh, uh, I will find, it will, uh let's say, uh, uh your shalom, okay. If a seeker of shalom is there, your shalom will find its rest with him. And if there isn't, it'll return to you. You're not wasting it. Stay in the same house, eat and drink. What they offer for worker deserves his wages. Don't move about from house to house. And he tells them in verse 8, whenever you come into a town where they make you welcome, eat what is put in front of you, heal the sick there, Tell them the kingdom of God is near you. Very simple. They say, "Um, is there any particular brand of oil that we should use when we go forward? Is there a particular way that you want us to phrase that prayer? He just says, go and tell them. It'll be given to you. Mentioned in another place. Even when you come into challenging circumstances, you don't have to prepare in advance what you're going to say when challenged. The ruach, the spirit of God, will give that to you, and help you to be able to uh, know what to do in in that regard. Uh, There is also uh, another aspect to this, and I want to kind of bring this to a close. But when we look at it, He is telling them to share their faith. He is telling them to share the message. You don't have, we don't have to be perfect in what we share, but our heart needs to be in a right standing with God and with each other because we labor together. Imagine when the, when two by two, if the two argued along the way, how effective would their testimony be? And it may very well be that when we see Paul, as I mentioned before, spewing out judgments against the new developing believing community at the time, they might have had in mind a very solemn prayer Lord, kill that man. He's destroying your kingdom. And yet God knits them together when he got Rav Shaul's attention. And isn't it interesting that in the process, he says to him, when the one disciple said, uh, when he was told to go to to Rav Shaul, he said, Lord, you you realize who this guy is? And, And you realize he's arresting People like me. You remember the phrase that was that God says to him? He says, I will show him the things he must suffer. Now, it doesn't mean that to become a believer automatically means you suffer. But the wonder of what God brings is that even if you do, you're able to walk in a place of greater understanding because, in a sense, the interweaving of that, that tekelet, that, that blue thread, that presence of God in all of the fringe details of what we do, all of the elements of life binding us to the Lord and to the things that He says gives us the ability and the faith to stand up and embrace the fullness of the message of redemption that comes through Messiah, that we declare him, that we declare the living word, that we declare Messiah to those around us. And in so doing, he is lifted up. And when he is lifted up, he draws all people to himself. It isn't a matter of saying just simply, come and see. But come and see and make sure that we are getting people engaged in the process of really getting to know him. And the way they get to know him first is by seeing him resident in us. And if he is not transforming our life, then what testimony are we giving and how weak is the gift we're trying to offer them? We are offering, in a way, a substitute. We're saying, you have an anemic element in your life. Let me give you one that's a little better, but still anemic. That is no... (laughs) That's not a good promo, let me tell you. When God sees, when people see the transforming work that God does in people, and I believe that one of the reasons why, when he sent them forward, he didn't give them instructions on how to lay hands on them, or maybe he didn't but he did give them the, the three steps and the seven steps and all this. He says, I'm sending you out. You've seen it happening. Here's what I want you to do. In the process, they were engaged with a sense of deep dependence on God because they had never done this on their own before and they weren't going to be successful on their own now. But there was a connecting point. And sometimes that connecting point can make us feel very uncomfortable. Sometimes it doesn't feel like there is a connecting point. And sometimes the conventional wisdom tells us that Moses and God probably had a good idea about this real estate that he was bringing us to, but God and Moses probably did not realize that it was already occupied by people bigger than us, stronger than us, more equipped than us. Joshua and Caleb saw... That with all of the numbers, size, and armies that they had, they were no match for the God who just humbled the nation of Egypt, which was the most powerful nation of its day. They lost sight of the miracle that God had done there. He said, yeah, sure, in Egypt he could do his power, but what about out here? I mean, what are the boundaries where his power begins to dissipate, where he loses Wi-Fi connection? Where is it that this happens that all of a sudden he's out there without any connection to his Facebook and email and Twitter? What happens then to your kingdom, huh? (laughs) Well, there is a network in place that is much bigger than anything we could ever come up with. And you don't even need computers to connect. God connects to this computer and to this computer, to our head and to our heart. And he is able to bring about when nobody... When no human will encourage you, he will encourage you. But how much better when those who have a similar calling are able to encourage each other, press through difficulties, and take hold so that we can collectively go out and share to the Jew first and also to the non-Jew, to share a message that is not my opinion or my persuasion or my particular doctrine, but sharing Yeshua with power so that He is lifted up and people are drawn in. And then when they experience it, they do like the disciples when they first heard about it. He says, can anything come out of Nazareth? Natsareth? He said, come and see. Come and see. I want you to see for yourself. I want you to experience for yourself. And here's a little taste of it. You have a problem with that condition? Let me pray for you right now. What happened? Healing took place. What happened? Do you think the idea of now going and seeing this one might be worthwhile? There is something about allowing the Spirit and the power of God to move freely. And I mention this a lot because more and more I realize it comes down to very little. It comes down to Yeshua lifted up, but it comes down to the things that He said that we have neglected. He said, Father, that they may be one as we are one. And the moment we begin to shift away from being bound to him, we get bound to chaos. We get bound to the wrong thinking. We get bound to depression and discouragement. And we find ourselves in a wilderness alone, like a cold ember, because there's no fuel coming from those around us. He wants us to be knit together in unity. It doesn't mean uniformity. It doesn't mean we all exactly think the same. But there is that place of common bond that allows us to connect and to be unified. And when that happens, and again, when you talk about binding, different ways to be bound. On the day of Shavuot, they came together and they heard every person in their own language hearing the praises of God. On the day of the Tower of Babel, they were united in in such a way that God said, nothing will be able to stop them. And that was not a motivated motivated by good things, they were looking to overtake God. And what did he do? He confused their language so that they would not be in unity. And what happens when we argue with each other? Our language is confused and we're not in unity and the flow of God's power stops or at least stops for us who are in those conflicts because other voices will continue to work together. But God doesn't want anybody cast over to the side. He wants to draw us into it because there's a reason that we are there in unity. The other, he says, they will know that you are my disciples because I'm printing up cards that say so. And I'm putting down, this is a Talmud with high recommendations, high scholarship, High ACT score, whatever they have. High, no, it it doesn't say. He said, they'll know you're my disciples by the love you have for one another. The love that is able to conquer every challenge, every hurt feeling, every discouragement. And when people see that, there is a patience that is present. There is a presence that is present. And when they see it, they say, this is something I haven't seen. These must be what he meant when he said they're disciples. And the other, as I mentioned before, is when Yeshua was on the execution stake and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The love that he had for mankind allowed him to take all the scorn and all of the ridicule and all of the challenge of contradictions of sinners and see the bigger picture. He didn't ask in advance that they sign a waiver. He didn't ask in advance that if they will if he lays his life down, will you guarantee to follow me? He said, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And I told you this before, but it goes, I hear it all the time. You share with somebody, say, look, Yeshua said, forgive them. They don't know what they do. This person knows exactly what they're doing. They planned it. They did it. It was malicious. They know exactly what they're doing. Listen, those disciples who fled when challenges came along, we're not a band of brothers at that moment, were they? They were splitting in all kinds of directions. And those people who were out there, they planned what happened, but they didn't know what was going on. And if we can tune in to those elements and let Messiah be lifted up in that way, he will make himself manifest in a way that we only can dream of in ways that our imagination can't even comprehend. And when that happens, it won't be the kind of thing that says, well, should we go out and pray? Should we pray for him not pray for him? Well, what if nothing happens? Well, maybe we better not pray. Let's, let's do a generic prayer. Maybe that'll be better. But you see, there's a difference when you sense and see the empowerment of God. And so you pass the guy at the gate going into the temple for years. And this time, with a different empowerment and a different eye and a different sense, you walk and go, silver and gold I don't have. But what I have, I give to you. Stand up and walk. And he was healed. Did this guy understand theologically what happened? No. Did he share immediately with everybody? All I know is, I was healed. The man who was healed of blindness. Did they ask him about? He says, look, you guys are driving me nuts. Here it is. I was blind. Now I see. Go talk to him yourself and find out about it. I'm a different man. But the testimony of the power of God doesn't come when we are in disunity. It doesn't come when we don't have that power of love overcoming all of those challenges and those voices looking to discourage. It comes as a part of love that we look at each other and see the investment God's put there. Sometimes you can see very little investment and see a lot of things that are negative. It's easy to see the negative. But when we can encourage those elements that we see, people rise to the occasion because that's where they want to be. That's where their heart wants to be. And when we do, we walk in a manner that releases the power of God in such a way that people's lives around us are changed because our whole sense of what's going on is different. And Yeshua, (laughs) do you think he was saying to them, I want you to go out and heal? Heal. What do I know about healing? You're the one who heals. Why are you sending me out? I'm just new to this thing. What are you talking about? Why don't you go with me? Then you heal them. I want you to go out and do it. What do I know? Okay. I I do though. Okay. (laughs) I remember, I'll tell you one story real quick. When I first came to the Lord. I thought it was just dramatic, everything happened, right? The next day, I go in there and I'm, I don't know anything, right? And I just felt this guy, they say, he's demon possessed. I bear hugged the guy, take him to the ground, being a wrestler, carried him into the prayer room, they said, and, and, and this was, the, this was after all this, I think I've told you before, I'm not gonna do the whole thing. But the fact was that after this guy was delivered, I felt like I was supposed to pray for him. And I thought, well, I'm not even 24 hours old in the Lord yet. What do I know about any of this? And there was one thing that I remembered. It was just, I think about it in relation to this. <laughs> they were getting ready to lay hands on the person to pray for him. And they said, the Lord wants you to do it. And I thought, how do they know that? I, I know that. I'm supposed to do that. I know that. But how do they know that? I didn't understand all this God stuff yet. And so they said, they said to me, he wants you to do it. Now, here is what it looked like. I don't know anything about it, right? I don't know what wants me to do it. I felt like I was supposed to. They said I'm supposed to do it. So I go like this. I go. I make this face. I clench my fist. And I, I'm saying, God, what do I do? Which is, was nonverbal, but I went. And, it was, and, and one of the mothers in the, in, the, in the church, she said, isn't that cute? He's asking God. And I left my hands. I just reached over, and I took him, and I was holding on to him, just to hold on to him. He said he felt this flush of electricity running through him. I didn't have the voltage, but I had a heart that wanted to serve because I just got delivered, and this man got delivered. I didn't know procedures for you know, when do you bring the apron across the bottom of the skirts and other things? You know, I didn't know any of the details. All I knew was I was supposed to pray for him and knew nothing about it. Boom! The power of God was there. I didn't make it happen, but it was a pure thing that God did. See, and that's what we want to see. The purity of what God does. And it comes by being in unity. It comes by letting God love through us. It comes by loving Each other and overlooking the faults forgiving and walking in a manner that the world has not witnessed yet in the way they need to and when they do you don't have to do a whole lot the power of God's love does the rest and Messiah is lifted up they come to know him they experience his power and they go and tell somebody that's what we need to see Lord, we thank You so much for this time together in Your Word and, and for the call that You've given us to be on a recon mission, but not just to get information, but to get a strategy and to, be get, to get ourselves tied to the Commander-in-Chief, not of this country, but of the entire universe. The Commander-in-Chief of Your armies. The Commander-in-Chief of Heaven and of Earth. Lord, that we would come into that place and that we would allow not just to say the kingdom of God is coming, but demonstrate and say, where are you coming from? I'm in the kingdom of God because that's where the king reigns and I'm letting him reign. Lord, help us to let you reign in us so that we could rain your blessings upon those around us and be doing what it is we are called to do and not playing around anymore, but seeing the fire and the power of God come forward in a way that transforms the region as only you are able. Let us not be sidetracked by schmoozing. Let us not be sidetracked by talking or complaining. Let us not be sidetracked by hurt feelings, but let us move boldly into the place Where we say of giants, not a problem for the God I serve. They fall, we walk in because you are with us. And Lord, we just pray that you would open up doors for us and to walk in unity and in power, to see you lifted up and to see your kingdom come in power like never before.